Hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew just giving us this uh, understanding that Jesus, and, and the whole crux behind Matthew's Gospel is to show and to prove through the Scriptures that Jesus Christ is not only God, that he's the Messiah, but, he's, but that he's the rightful heir to the throne of his father David. And, uh, and yet, even though he was, uh, he was David's Lord, even though he came through the line of David. You know, as we've been going through this, and last week, if you remember, we looked at chapter 16, just the last uh, probably seven or eight verses of chapter 16. And, and prior to that, Jesus had been presenting himself to the, the children of Israel as their Messiah. And if you recall, they, they rejected him. They rejected that he was the Messiah. And, and it's an interesting thing that they did because the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, had been prophesying for hundreds of years, even a few millennia, that Christ would come. Very specific prophecies of Christ's coming, of, of where he was going to be born, where he was going to be brought up, on minute details of his life, and yet he fulfilled all of those. And his role, he's God come in human flesh to save and redeem mankind, fallen man. Can anyone relate to being fallen? <laughs> From birth we were fallen. And Christ came on the greatest rescue mission to save mankind, to redeem man back to himself. And that all we need to do is put our faith and our trust in Christ. And the Bible says that we can live forever, eternal life with Christ, because we know that there are two places, aren't there? There is heaven. Heaven is a very real place. And there's also hell, and it's a very real place. And you and I, we get to choose where we're going to spend our eternity, it's your choice. It's not, God doesn't send anyone to hell. You make that choice for yourself. But Jesus came to the Jews first because it was through his line, it was through his race of people, or his uh, race is not there, his eth that ethnic group. He came through them. And he went to them first and they rejected him. And you remember back in chapter 12, verse 28, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back where the miracles that Jesus were doing, the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to attribute those miracles to the spirit of Satan in Jesus. Can you believe that? And they rejected him. Not only, uh, not only did the religious leaders reject him, but the people rejected him. He wasn't the Messiah they were hoping for. They wanted a king to come and conquer and to remove the yoke of Rome from off of them so that they could be free from the influence of Rome. But Jesus came to do something so much greater. Because think if that's, all, if that's all he did was just to liberate Palestine or liberate Canaan or Israel from Rome. So what? <laughs> really? I mean, it's the size of Rhode Island, Israel. Yeah, it's the size of Rhode Island. That's how small the country is. And yet, to just redeem, or just to throw off the yoke of Rome, and then the Roman Empire would continue on, wouldn't that be a waste of time? I mean, certainly the people in Israel would be happy, 
But the program of God was so much bigger because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And not just for Israel. He came to them first, but he came to save all of mankind. He didn't stop at the Jews. He started with them because that's, he came through Mary. He came through the line of Judah. He started there. But they rejected him. And the scriptures seem to point very clearly that when Jesus was alive, if they would have received him as their Messiah, that he would have ushered in the kingdom of heaven right then. And kingdom of heaven, what am I referring to? I'm not talking about the place that we go when we die. We know that when we die, our body goes into the ground, but our soul and our spirit either ascend to heaven or goes to hell, to Hades. I'm not talking about that kingdom of heaven, because that place is temporary. Because when Jesus comes back, and we know from the, the things that we've been studying in the Bible that right now we are in the church age. It began on the day of Pentecost, and it's been lasting for nearly 2,000 years now. But the Bible says, and we've been looking at this as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that there's coming a point when Christ will come for his church, for his bride, and he will take her up off the earth. We call it the rapture of the church. It's from the Latin meaning rapio or raptus, which means to be violently taken up and transformed transformed and be taken to heaven and that could happen while we are here today and i hope it does but the bible says that but after the rapture of the church it tells us that there's a seven year period of great tribulation upon the earth and folks can i tell you the things that you're seeing in the newspapers the things that you're seeing on the news all of these things that have been happening, and especially within the last three years, oh my goodness, wrapping it up. God is wrapping it up. All those things that we've been reading about in Revelation, the form of them is becoming clearer and clearer. And shouldn't it? Yeah, it should. And it is, and it's coming to pass. But when Christ removes his church, there's going to be a seven-year period. The Bible calls the Great Tribulation or Jacob's Trouble or the 70th week of Daniel in different places. And it's going to be a time where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a world, upon a group of people, minus the church, of course, because we believe in him. And he doesn't put his bride through his wrath. Follow me? We will suffer persecution in this life, but the Bible says we will not suffer the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So God will pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected him. And then at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, physically Christ will come to the earth, to this earth, and he will set up his kingdom we call it the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven I'm speaking of. The kingdom of heaven that the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and others, and, and even in the book of Revelation, have been speaking about for hundreds of years. Of this time when the curse is removed. Does anybody realize that we're living in a cursed world? I don't think it's utopia. Do you? <laughs> no, it's, it's horrible. I'm looking forward to that day. When the curse is removed and things are restored like they were back in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because Christ will be ruling and reigning from a, 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 a temple that will be built. That he will build himself in Jerusalem. And he will be here along with all of us because we come back with him in his second coming. The kingdom of heaven 
The Bible's been talking about it for millennia, for hundreds of years, for a few thousand years of this time. And this is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus offered to the Jews. And had they accepted him, he would have ushered in the kingdom when he, when he came around 32, 33 A.D., in the first century. He would have ushered in it if they would have accepted But they rejected him. And so the Lord now is going to uh, reach out to the Gentiles. He's going to have his, his disciples go and minister to the Gentiles. And most of us are Gentiles. And that program, that kingdom program is now going to be delayed. And it had been delayed since Christ rejected, was rejected by them. He rejected them for a time. And that kingdom now is yet future to us. That kingdom that the prophets have foretold. The kingdom that Jesus was referring to. The times of refreshment, the, the regeneration. That day is coming, but not until the church is removed, not until the great tribulation, not until Christ's second coming when we come back with him, and then a thousand years. We call it the millennium. A thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. So when the climate people are saying, in 20 more years, if we don't get a handle on climate, you know, our climate, you know, our, everything's going to be flooded and everything, you know, hey, they've been saying that for years. It's a big scam. It's a big sham. It's not true. It's fake news. Because, how do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that's not a problem. Jesus is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And it doesn't say, oh, i got to clean up this mess that they made. No. He's going to rule and reign. So now, as he's talking about this kingdom now that's going to be delayed now, and his disciples are slowly getting it, slowly getting the idea that this kingdom is not coming now, even though they're, they're hoping that it will come soon, but they don't know. See, you and I have the advantage of having the entire canon of Scripture in our hands. We look back on this now, and it's all becoming very much, much clearer to us. But when they were in the middle of it, when they were in the first century, they had no clue. They weren't, they weren't putting two and two together yet. And so they were hoping for the kingdom at any moment. And I think they needed some encouragement. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the, by the elders and the chief priests, and I'm going to be crucified. But then I'll rise the third day, and the disciples never got the rising again, the third day part. They focused on, what do you mean you're going to die and be crucified? That's not part of the program, Lord. You're supposed to throw off the yoke of Rome. You're supposed to usher the kingdom in now that the prophets have been telling us about. You've got to do that. And he's like, you don't understand. That kingdom now is delayed because Israel had rejected Christ. And we look forward to that kingdom. All those who died before us are waiting as well. Those in Christ who have died, they're waiting for that kingdom. That thousand year reign. And then the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 and 22 that even after that thousand-year reign, there is going to be an eternity, the eternal state, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and that's the eternal state. Nothing will change at that point. It'll be eternal bliss for eternity, for us. 
but eternal torment for those who have rejected Christ. And the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. He loves people. That's why he came to redeem us, right? So they needed some encouragement. And as we look at these first 13 verses of chapter 17, I believe at the very least what Jesus is doing is encouraging these men who have now heard that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And they're like, we were just getting started here. And and now you've been in ministry here for three years. And now you're leaving us? Now you're going to die? They didn't quite get it, and they needed something. And I, and I believe, at the, at the very least, this was just a shot in the arm for them. Because as they were on that mount, as we're going to read, in the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe it's Mount Hermon, as they were there on that mountain, Jesus revealed himself. His glory became apparent to them. It was a vision. It was something that God did. And Moses and Elijah were there, who had been long gone, long dead for hundreds of years. And they are standing there conversing with Jesus. And the disciples, and not all of them, three of them, three of the twelve, Peter, James, and John, the Lord chose them specifically to come up and, 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 and see this sight, to see the very glory of Christ in his coming. It was sort of like a preview, if you will. And those men were blown away. They were completely blown away. And I believe they needed that encouragement because after Christ died after three days he was resurrected and then 40 days later he ascended into heaven they were going to be persecuted and the church would be persecuted unlike any other time and they were going to need that encouragement because they would need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt this is the Christ we know it we've seen him glorified on the mountain we've seen God the father come over us in a mist and say this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. (laughs) Amazing. So let's read it. Verse 1. Notice. Now after six days, Jesus took, notice, Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, Moses and Elijah have been dead for hundreds of years, right? So think about that. (laughs) And they're there talking with him. And then Peter, verse 4, answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But notice, while he was still speaking, and I love this about Peter, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Notice God the Father speaking. Hear him. Specifically. We'll look at that. And when the disciples heard it, notice, they fell on their faces, were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Love that. 
Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So there's a lot here for us to look at. So let's just get right into it. Notice in verse 1, it says, Now after six days. So this is a time reference, and it is linked to the event that occurred just prior to this, and that was when Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. And when Peter, and it's also when Peter rebuked Jesus, remember, this shall not happen to you, Lord. You're not going to Jerusalem and being crucified. I'm not going to allow it to happen. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, or rather he rebuked Satan that was using Peter at that moment. What? Using Peter? Satan using? Yes. He wasn't possessing him. He was using his mouth. Because remember what was said in the previous chapter. Just go back in verse, uh, chapter 16, look at verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and then be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside. Can you imagine his own disciple grabbing him by the shoulders? This shall not happen to you. <laughs> Can you imagine the chutzpah of that? Uh, just a, a note, don't ever rebuke God. It's not a good idea. Try to refrain from that. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now again, Peter was not possessed by Satan, but he was being influenced by the devil, certainly. And Jesus, remember, came into this world to die for the sin of man. And nothing was going to dissuade him from doing this greatest rescue mission of all of mankind because we were lost in our sins and we needed to be saved. We needed to be redeemed because we were hopelessly lost. But a believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by the devil or a demon. The Bible tells us so. What does it tell us in John's gospel? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you, speaking of the Spirit of God, if you're born again, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in the context, he's speaking about the spirit of Antichrist, which is in the world. It's happening right now. It's happening in our Oval Office. So Paul, in his letter, even in Romans, what does he tell us? But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ in you, he is not his. Did you hear that? That means that I can go through all the motions. I can give all my money to the church, and I can make great donations and think I'm really good. But there's only one thing that God looks for, and that's the presence of his spirit in you. And that is available to any person who is willing to confess their sin and receive Christ into their heart. And when he does, trust me, your life will change. My life changed dramatically. I remember being 24 years old, living in sin and doing all the things, drinking and carousing. 
And when the Spirit of God came into my heart, everything changed. And it didn't start with me thinking that I was really something. Rather, I was convulsively lying on the floor, crying like a baby, begging God to forgive me of my sin. That's a good thing, by the way. Brokenness. A humility, a brokenness, realizing I'm nothing without you, God, and I am guilty before you. That is a very good sign when a heart recognizes that I am sinner, lost, and I'm on my way to hell unless you, God, unless you save me, I am hopelessly lost forever. And I knew that. And when God did that in my life and in yours, hopefully all of you, I knew. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt But notice, Peter, in this dialogue with Jesus, was not very spiritually discerning. So how important are our words again? You know, the words that we say. Peter didn't even realize what he was saying. So, But this phrase, notice in verse 1 of 17, chapter 17, now after six days, was not only linked to this event that we just looked at just a moment ago. And they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern part of Israel, just south of Mount Hermon. It's not only linked to that event that we just discussed, but specifically to verse 28. And what does verse 28 of chapter 16 tell us? Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now remember, these chapter divisions that we have in the Bible were not inspired by God. These were put there by the translators for us to be able to navigate through the Bible so that we could quote it, so that we could reference certain passages. That wasn't necessarily inspired by God. And here is a very good example. Because chapter 16, verse 28, really belongs to the next chapter, 17, verse 1. Because if you, if you read, now after six days, Jesus took Peter. If you read this passage from chapter 1 of chapter 17, or verse 1, excuse me, through verse 11, or 13, excuse me, you might miss what happened in the verse in chapter 16, the very last verse. He talked about, there are some here, Jesus said to his disciples in the first century, there are some here that will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his power. Now we know that that hasn't happened yet, even in our time. So what is he talking about? Well, if you read verse 28 of chapter 16 and go right into chapter 17, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. So Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, why just Peter, James, and John? What about the rest of them? We don't know exactly, but when we consider how the Lord was going to use these three men, it makes a little more sense because each one of them God used in amazing ways. We know that Peter would minister to the Jews, and he would also minister to the Gentiles, but his focus would be on the Jews, and he would go on to write two letters or two epistles that we have here in our Bible. First and second Peter. And Peter was a significant character on the day of Pentecost, was he not? And then later on in the book of Acts. And he was also, according to church tradition, was crucified upside down. Because he wasn't, he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. And so they acquiesced to his request. Fine, we'll turn you upside down and nail you to the cross. And what about John? John would write the gospel that was written, that, is, uh, that bears his name, along with three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He would also pen the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book at the end of the Bible. 
And James was John's brother. And he would also suffer a martyr's death, testifying of the truth of Christ. And it's interesting that it's a similar pattern that Moses did, remember, when he received the law on Mount Sinai. When he went up to meet God on Mount Sinai to receive the stone tablets, a very similar thing because Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu accompanied him to a certain point. Just like Peter, James, and John are now accompanying Jesus on this high mountain in Israel. And also the Bible tells us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every matter be established. So why did he bring them up? Why just those three? Why not all of them? Well, he had a plan for those three specifically. But doesn't it tell us in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And Numbers 35 says the same thing. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty, even in our own justice system, which is based upon this. Did you know that? That our justice system that we have currently is based upon this. It is. It's based on the word of God. It's based on the law of Moses. Every one of those laws are based upon them. And then Peter and John, two separate witnesses, many years later would attest to this event that they experienced with Jesus on the mountain. And it tells us in Second Peter, Peter said this, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There it is. One of the witnesses was Peter. He saw it with his own eyes, and he wrote it in his second epistle. He wrote it in his second letter. For he received from God the Father, he says, uh, from the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. And here he quotes this very passage that we're reading now. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And what about John? In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was there. Peter was there. And they witnessed it with their own eyes. And Jesus told them, Don't say anything until after I'm resurrected. And we'll look at that too. But notice He led them up onto a high mountain themselves. And again, they were in this area of Caesarea Philippi just prior to this, remember. And so right up here is Caesarea Philippi, up on the northern part, right uh, to the east of, the, of Dan. And right to the north of Caesarea Philippi, this whole mountain range up here is Mount Hermon. And it's snow-capped even in the summertime. I've got photos on a couple of different occasions of standing on Mount Arbel next to the Galilee, looking north and seeing in the distance, through the haze, Mount Hermon, snow-capped, and it's 80 degrees. <laughs> I'm standing there on top of Mount Arbel, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, looking north and seeing the snow-capped mountains of Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in Israel. It's a ski resort. You can go up there and ski if you want. But we believe this is where Jesus led them up to. 
And notice in verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This word transfigured is a really wonderful word. It's a Greek word, and it's called metamorphu. Metamorphu. And it's exactly like our English word metamorphosis, right? And it literally... The Greek word here is where we get our word metamorphosis, and Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way, metamorphosis, that is, a change of physical form, structure, or substance, especially by supernatural means. And aren't we seeing that in this chapter? Jesus being transformed supernaturally before their eyes, showing the, the real, who he really is, the glory of the Son of God, the God himself in the flesh. And they would no doubt be encouraged by this. And notice his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' physical appearance wasn't what drew people. It was what was inside, which was always the heart of God. He's not concerned about outward appearances. It wasn't his outward appearance. He, he didn't look like Fabio, you know, this long blonde hair and this really nice face, and, you know, slender guy, you know, pool guy, you know, the guy who does your pool. It wasn't Fabio. He, he, didn't, he didn't have this. He wasn't like gorgeous on the outside. He wasn't a handsome man in the, as far as the world's perspective is. And how do I know that? I'll tell you in a minute. But his demeanor... His character, that is what shined through. He was literally the Son of God come in human flesh. And there was nothing about him that would seem, you know, that would draw people to him in the physical. You've all seen this uh, painting, haven't you? It's a modern painting of Jesus. Notice he's got brown hair and blue eyes. Looking handsome, but certainly not an accurate depiction of him. Now that may sound a little funny to you because you're thinking, well, Jesus was beautiful. Yes, he was. He was beautiful on the inside, and in his glorified state, brilliant, resplendent. However, when he was on the earth, not so much. There was nothing about his physical nature that would attract people to him. And I guess it had to be that way. Because in our world today, aren't we seeing that the most attractive people are the ones that draw all the attention? God wanted to make sure that if you're drawn to me, it has nothing to do with the physical appearance. And it had to be that way. God is more concerned about what's inside rather than the outside. And he proved it by his very visage, by his very appearance. This painting was uh, created or painted by Warner Salmon in 1940. And it was distributed all over the world. And this has had such a profound effect. This picture that we've all seen, it's had a profound effect on what we think Jesus looked like. But what does the scripture say? I think that's important. Don't you? I mean, again, it's a nice picture. Don't get me wrong. And the painter was a fantastic painter. Nothing against that. And we know that Jesus is beautiful in, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> Believe me. But he, his, his, his whole garments, everything about him shone. He was transfigured before them. His glory was revealed to some extent. Right? But what does the Bible tell us? Isaiah tells us 
about this suffering servant. Let me read it to you just for the sake of time. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report, Isaiah says, 700 years before Jesus would even be born? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, he's speaking now about Christ, the Messiah. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant before God the Father. And as a root out of a dry ground. Notice, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is a man despised by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our face from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. There was nothing about his physical appearance. But now he's transfigured before them. Now they see who he really is. The description of Jesus in verse 2 is very much like the post-resurrection descriptions that we read of in Scripture. Let me read to you in Revelation chapter 1. If you're having a bad day and you feel like the world is closing in on you and you think that Uh, everything is going to pot. And by the way, it is. It's going to pot. It's going completely to pot. When you're feeling down and out, I would encourage you to read Revelation chapter 1 because here is the description of Christ when he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven. This is what he looks like now. This is the way we're going to see him when we see him at the rapture. Let me read it to you. Paul or John, excuse me, writing, he says, Then I turned and, and he sees in a vision Jesus glorified in heaven. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, and he's speaking of none other than Christ himself. And he goes on in verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Think of that in your mind's eye. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So that is who Jesus is now. That's the Jesus that they got a preview of on this mountain during his transfiguration They were blown away. Think of how you would feel. They needed that encouragement. And folks, can I encourage you today? Again, we live in difficult times. We live in perilous times. The Bible's been telling us about this. In the last day, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of their own selves. And Paul and Peter, they tell us about these things. That are, that are happening right now. It's, it, it's coming to fruition. It's worse than it's ever been. But I want to encourage you to keep your eyes focused on Christ. Keep your, fo- your focus on him. Keep looking up. Don't look at the, the horizontal. Look at the vertical and get your eyes off the circumstances. And I have to do that too because I get discouraged sometimes. Because I, I never, and you've heard me say this before, I never knew I would see what's happening in our country on my watch. Ah, but in the last three years, it's taken a turn. Oh, my goodness. And naturally, as an American, I'm quite concerned. But then I have to remember, these things must be. It doesn't mean I roll over and let it happen. No, I continue to vote. I I do legally what I can to stop this tide of putrescence, which is happening. I do what I can. I pray, but I know in my heart 
And we continue to pray, Lord, change our hearts. Help us to be good soldiers of yours. Not ones that go out and blow things up. That's not who he's called us to be. We are to seek and save the lost, just like Jesus did. Jesus never pulled out a sword after people. But notice in verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah, they appeared to them talking with him. And Peter, James, and John may have thought that Jesus was going to bring about the kingdom at that moment, but it was a preview. And so this transfiguration served to do at least a few things. Number one, to again encourage Jesus' disciples on who he really was. Number two, it showed the reality of Jesus' oneness with the Father, because the Father interrupted Peter speaking, remember? And said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. It also showed his messianic mission. Fourthly, the fact that there is a coming kingdom. That the kingdom is real, guys. <laughs> that, you know, he's saying that to his disciples. You know, the things that you've been reading in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and many others. You've been reading about this. It's coming. Here's a preview. Look. And fourthly, the fact that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified and rise again. So what was the significance of Moses and Elijah specifically being present? Well, we know that Moses represented the law of the Old Testament. The first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Elijah, certainly among the great prophets, he was one of the first of the great prophets. He represented the prophetic word. But there may be another significance for those who were present when this occurred. Perhaps all who were there represented categories of individuals who will be present to inherit the kingdom after the second coming of Christ. Because we know that the kingdom of heaven is coming, isn't it? It's coming. It's not here now. But when Christ comes physically to the earth in his second coming, when he comes physically to the earth, and we come back with him, the Bible tells us. That is going to be the kingdom that we're referring to. So who are the people that are going to be present when that event occurs? So we look at Moses. We look at the disciples. They were, if you can think of it this way, why were they there? Is there more to this than meets the eye, and very possibly because the disciples themselves were individuals who will be present, and they were present there in physical bodies. And the same thing is true in when Jesus comes back to the earth, that the same thing is going to happen. There will be, um, so the disciples might represent those who had come to believe in Jesus during the great tribulation, those who came to Christ during the great tribulation at great peril, and then physically live into that kingdom, the disciples could represent those people. Secondly, Moses represents or could represent the saved individuals who have died or will die. And Moses represents that group of Old and New Testament saints who have died in faith, including those believers who will be martyred during the Great Tribulation period. And you can look at Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. You can look at Revelation 6, 9 through 11 to corroborate what I just said. 
And then thirdly, Elijah represents individuals who will not experience death, but will be caught up to heaven. Remember, it was Elijah who was taken up. He didn't die, and God took him up in a chariot of fire. He never saw death, much like Enoch in the, in the uh, Old Testament in Genesis. It says he loved God and he walked with God and then God translated him. Only two people in the Bible that we know of who didn't taste death physically. And they're in glory right now. Only two. And so this, that last group could represent those of us who are alive when Christ comes and we will be taken up. Our bodies will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, Paul tells us, and we'll forever be with the Lord. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. That's a pretty good comfort, don't you think? I'm comforted every day thinking about what's coming. Not because I'm excited about going through persecution. In church, we're going to go through persecution. Be ready because it's happening right now. And it's going to get a lot worse before Christ comes for us. And yes, I will use Christ as my crutch. You escapist. You just want to escape the world when it goes to hell. Yes, I do. I don't want to be here when God pours out his wrath on a world that has rejected him. Does anybody here? Raise your hand if you want to be here to go through what we read about in Revelation 6 through 19. Does anybody want to go through that really? No, I want to be in the mezzanine. I want to be with the Lord. And folks, that is the truth. Do you believe it? Do we believe what I just spoke to you? And not what I just spoke to you because we've talked about it, we've looked at it here. It's in here. It's not just my opinion. You don't need my opinions. My opinions mean nothing. Anyone, any man's opinion means nothing. Ah, but the word of God abides forever. I'll lean on this and not so much on the word of man. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. All right. So these three groups will present, will be present, excuse me, when Christ institutes his kingdom on earth. And we'll also see, of course, the Lord in his glorified state at at the same time. And it took place on earth. The transfiguration took place on earth. The kingdom of heaven is going to take place on earth. It's going to take place on earth, as the Bible has said. And notice in verse 3 again, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking. And what were they talking about? Well, Matthew and Mark's gospel, uh, the parallel gospels of this very same account, uh, doesn't tell us anything, but Luke's gospel does. Luke tells us that, behold, the two men talked with him, speaking of Moses, uh, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared him in glory, and notice, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what were they talking about? His decease. Moses and Elijah. Moses had been prophesying of these things that were going to happen to Christ. So they're talking about it. Hey, the time has come. How are you holding up? It's about that time. Can you imagine that? The very God that inspired Moses to write those words standing there with God himself who inspired him to write it. Everything is going as planned. Everything is going as planned. And notice verse 4, then Peter answered. I love this. Peter answered. Notice that nobody asked Peter a question. (laughs) 
I love this. It reminds me of me. Before somebody asks me a question, I'm already giving an answer. So Peter answered, and nobody asked him a question, and he very likely interrupted the Lord in this, in this little conference call, if you will, between him and Moses and Elijah, between, between Jesus and those other two men. Lord, it's good for us to be here. You just interrupted me, Peter. We were speaking of some really great things. I don't know if you noticed that, but uh, you just interrupted us. Peter, the impetuous one. I love that. It reminds me of me, and especially in my less refined days. I'm slowly being refined, just like all of you, but I'm not quite there yet. But Peter reminds me a lot of me. Like Tourette's syndrome. Anything that's on my mouth, and my brain, it just comes out. He answered. Nobody asked him any question. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us at this very same moment in Mark 9, verse 6, says, he said that because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Isn't that amazing? And then he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And uh, God the Father, in the next verse, he needed to break into, break through all of this stuff to set the record straight and give the three of those disciples an understanding of who is really important here. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were not equals. Did you hear that? They are not equals because... You see, what, you see how subtle this is? Peter's thinking, he was so blown away, and all of us would be completely undone, honestly. If I was there, I'd be like, Lord, I'll do any, you know, I'd be opening my mouth and sticking my foot, both feet if I can fit them, into my mouth. They were completely blown away. Naturally, they're excited. They're like, and so Peter, they're all scared. They're, they're scared. So what does Peter do? Opens his mouth. Why don't we build three tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. God's going, uh, one, not these others. I am God, and these two are men. Do, do, do you get the point? Almighty God versus two men. You're not going to put them on the same level. <laughs> we shouldn't put them on the same level. Jesus is God and the only uncreated one. The rest of them were created. And it tells us that in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, and the Word is speaking of Jesus Christ. The, and the Greek word is logos, the logos. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Son is Christ. You've heard this ad nauseum from me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In Colossians, it tells us the same thing, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things, speaking of Christ, for by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, that's speaking of even demonic things that we can't see nor understand. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, literally meaning he holds it all together by his power, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, what he may have the preeminence, not Moses and Elijah, Jesus Christ alone. Amen? So now you know why God the Father had to break in and go, no, we're not going to build three tabernacles. In fact, Peter, just 
I mean, God didn't say this, but he implied it by speaking over him. <laughs> there was one temple in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures to go and read because I'm looking at the clock and I'm dismayed. So I'm going to give you some things to look at. And look at these two scriptures because there was one temple in Jerusalem that ought to be made. When the children of Israel came out of the desert or came out of, the, out of captivity, they were to go into the promised land and create one temple in a very specific place. And it would ultimately land and find its way in Jerusalem. There was one temple that was to be built. And even in for 2 Samuel chapter 7, Seven, verse uh, 1 through 13, God never desired to have a house to live in. How can God contain, be contained in a house? The heaven of heavens can't contain him. So David had the right heart when he was building his own house and thinking, you know, I live in this beautiful house, but God doesn't have a place to live. And God told Nathan the prophet, what did he tell him? <laughs> David had a right heart, but God said to Nathan, Nathan, go to, go to David and tell him this. He says, Lord, so the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I have moved about in a tent, in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoke a word to anyone about the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why don't, why don't you build me a house of cedar? He could care less about the building. They needed a temple because that's what happens at a temple. Sacrifice, worship. But God says, I, I don't need to, you don't need to build it for me. You guys need that to worship me. David had a right heart, but he's not going to build me a temple. Solomon, his son, will build me a temple. And these disciples had read and heard Moses and Elijah every single time they went to synagogue. Think of this. These three men going to synagogue and reading the book of Moses, reading about Elijah, and now there they are in front of me. I mean, think of that. And they had died hundreds of years prior, hundreds of years. And now here they are standing in front of them. So... I suppose I could cut Peter a little slack from his excitement. Because honestly, if that were me, I mean, think about that, folks. If Jesus Christ were to manifest himself here on this platform right now, the first thing that would happen is I would slither off into the corner in shame. <laughs> and all of us would hit the bricks. We would be down on the carpet, prostrate, Going, we're not worthy, God. Your beauty, your holiness, who you are is so great, I can't, even, I can't even fathom it. And just being in your presence, naturally, involuntarily, I'm hitting the bricks. And that's the way it was for every saint of God who came into the presence of Almighty God. It wasn't like, hey, my brother, how you doing? No. It was, I fell on the ground and I didn't have any breath in me. Verse 5, notice, while he was still speaking. I have a feeling we're going to have to finish this later, so let's get a little further here. But notice, while he was still speaking. That's pretty embarrassing, isn't it? Peter's flapping his mouth. While he, in the process of Peter, and I would be doing the same thing, to be honest with you. We would all be doing that. We would be like, 
I've got to do something. And God's like, don't do anything. Just enjoy my presence. You don't have to say anything. You don't, I don't require anything of you. Just enjoy me. Just enjoy my presence. Yes, I know you feel like you're going to die because I'm holy. <laughs> and you are not. Can you imagine? I, I mean, seriously, when you're having a bad day, try not to bring Christ down to your level. Remember who he is. He's an exalted God. And we're going to look more next week. We're going to finish this and go further. And it is incredible. We're not done yet because I've got a few more minutes left. I'm going I'm to use them. All right? But think of that. Being in the physical presence of God. The physical presence of God. Everyone in the Bible who has done that has been blown out. They've been on the ground like dead. Think of that. That'll give you a little shot in your worship time. That's who he is. That's who he is. He's almighty God. No one like him. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Bible tells us, are going to fail. And when he comes back, the brightness of his coming will consume his enemies. The brightness of his coming. The Bible says that no one can stand in the presence of God and live. In his essence is spirit, God the Father. That's why we need new bodies when we go to heaven or when we spend our eternity on, you know, in the New Jerusalem or even here on this earth for a thousand years. We're going to need new bodies to withstand the presence of Almighty God. Because this body would disintegrate in the glory and the majesty and the power of Almighty God. Let that, let, think about that. Think about that. Love it, don't you? Because see, to me, the, the, the church in America and all throughout the world, and, and I know this is true because it's true of, of us at times and, other, and others in the church, we, we, we bring Christ down to our level, you know, and we forget who he really is. We've, we've lost that sense of who he really is. And we think that he's just one of us. Yes, he, he did come to the earth and he did humble himself and, and condescend to the nature of man to pay the price of our sin. He did do that, not, taking nothing away from that. But who he really is, these disciples saw a smidgen of it. And that is who we worship. That is who is the king over all. The king of all creation. All creation, over all things, visible and invisible. Whether we like it or not, whether the world likes it or not, this is the reality, and they will face him one day. Where are you going to be? Let me ask you the question today. Where are you going to be? Are you going to be on the, on, in Christ, or are you going to be on the other side? And see, we have to make that decision today. Now, I know that many of you, hopefully all of us, know we've already made that decision. But maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm a pretty decent person. Hey, it doesn't matter whether you're good or not. The main thing is whether you are in Christ or not. That's the only thing that's going to separate me from hell, 
is Christ in me by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And that's not what I think. That's what the Bible tells us. And that decision, folks, is up to you and I. And I know that this message goes way beyond these walls. It goes out on the Internet. It's going to go out on the radio in a few months, reaching hundreds of thousands, potentially a few million people. And so I'm asking those, too, where are you going to stand? Where are you going to be? Make your decision today. And I would encourage you to make the decision now. Because we don't have tomorrow. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We have what we have right now. We have no idea. We have no control over our life. We have no control. Our, very, our next breath is in the hand of Almighty God. And aren't you glad he's so wonderful like that? He gives you a breath. Think of that. Every breath you take, say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> And we take it for granted, I do. Make your calling and your election sure. Make the decision today. Do not wait. You do not have tomorrow. Does the worship team, do you guys have, did you guys plan another song? It's okay if you didn't. You know what, as we, um, we're going to stand and we're going to have to stop here. And I'm not going to make anybody feel uncomfortable here, but I I really don't care about your comfort in this regard because here's the deal. When you come to Christ, there's a battle. There's a battle for your soul. Do you know that there's a battle for your soul? The Lord wants to secure you, and the devil already has a hand on you if you're not one of his. He's already got you. But you must come to Christ. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not even an option. It's something that you must do. And it's reasonable. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but they want to live like hell for 70 or 80 years of their life and then expect God to somehow let them in because they've done some good things. Maybe they do this with the balances. No, there's going to be no scales. Christ is either in you or he is not. And that is the thing that separates us from God or to God from God or with God and we get to make that decision in just a moment we're going to stand and we're going to pray and I'm not going to do any weird thing but I'm going to ask you in the privacy of your own heart we're not going to have you come down nothing wrong with that Jesus said you acknowledge me before men I'll acknowledge you before my father in heaven nothing wrong with that either But if you have not received Christ and you want to receive Christ and you ought to receive Christ because he loves you passionately, he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And he proved it on the cross. He goes, I love you this much. Right? I know it's a cliche thing, but he laid out his hands on that cross. I love you more than you can imagine. And love that was demonstrated, not just with words. And isn't it true that talk is cheap? I can tell somebody I love them, oh, I love you, I love you, but then I don't do the things that prove that love. But Jesus proved the love that he had for mankind by going to the cross, demonstrating it on the cross, and defeating death and hell at the same time. To preserve you and I, to restore us in the fellowship with him, 
that we could be the bride of Christ. And one day he's going to present his bride to his father and say, look at her, isn't she beautiful? All of us together, and the Lord's, and God the Father is going to say, she is son. She's beautiful because you have purchased her. And you have covered her with your robe of righteousness, not their own robe of righteousness, his robe of righteousness. And beautiful are you in the sight of God. Beautiful are you in the sight of God, Christian. And even those that don't know him, do you know that he loves you? So as we pray, I just want you to, in the privacy of your own heart, if you want to receive Jesus this morning, in fact, let's do it right now. I'm just going to ask you to, don't even stand, just stay seated. And in the quiet of your mind, just repeat after me. And if you are sincere, if you're sincere, God will in no wise cast you out. And, and repeat after me, Father, I know that I, have, I am a sinner. And Lord, I know that you are coming for me. And Lord, I believe in what the scripture has said concerning you. I believe that, Lord, you are God and that you died for me personally. And Lord, I know that you're coming back again. The, your word tells us so. And Lord, I ask for you to come into my heart. Take up residence. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And welcome me into your kingdom. And can I tell you this? If you have said that and you are sincere... Pay attention. What you have just spoken will change your destiny forever. It'll change your destiny. And it doesn't require money. It doesn't require some kind of grandiose oath that I make. Oh God, if I do this, you know, I'll do anything you want. If you save me, I'll do all this for you. Jesus says, you just keep all that. Don't worry about that. You come to me. You come to me. I don't care about anything that you can give to me. You can keep your money. You can keep all of your empty oaths. Just come to me, God says. Come to me naked and ashamed, and I will clothe you, and I will give you great worth. Do you know that's his heart? That is the heart of God. And folks, when he looks down upon you, and some of you need to hear this today because you're beaten, being beaten down, you're discouraged, you feel worthless, you feel like your own witness is shot, you feel like you're not doing, you just, you're riddled with guilt even. Even as a believer, do you know that the Lord looks upon you with such great compassion and love? And he's like, I don't want you to walk around like the walking wounded. Will you come to me again? Just simply come to him. Just come to him and receive him and just say, Lord, heal me. I don't even know how to do it, Lord. You know, sometimes, sometimes that's the best thing is just to come before him. 
with nothing. And he would rather have you come that way. Just come. Will you come? Even as a believer, maybe you've struggled. Maybe you're in some sin right now that you're feeling pretty horrible about. Maybe the devil is whispering in your ears, you know, you, you know you've done this too many times. God's not going to, you've done with, he's done with you. Don't listen to that voice. What is the promise for us believers? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10, and read it, it says, if we confess, the church, if we confess our sins, then he, God, is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word all in the Greek is really interesting. It means all. (laughs) All unrighteousness. Isn't that the best deal going? So, Father, we just, uh, let's stand together. Let's pray. Sorry. Lord, we just uh, come before you with our hearts Lord, and and many of us maybe are doing okay. And Lord, I know there are some here that are not doing so okay. And some think they're doing okay and they have no clue. And such were some of us. But Lord, you have a plan and your love for us is very great. And your word is clear. Lord, would you help us today? Would you help the church, the body of Christ today? Would you give us a great love for each other? Lord, the the world will know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. Lord, help us to love one another and help us to not judge one another. Help us to love those who are unlovable. Lord, those who even drive us crazy and even the, the characters in the world that we just are so frustrated with. Lord, help us to not lash out and hate, but rather by your spirit love them, not not agreeing with what they're doing, certainly, Lord, or not condoning their activity by any means, but loving them because they are just a prisoner of war by the devil. But you have redeemed you want to redeem them, but they have to come to you of their own volition. So Lord help us to have hearts like that. And would you bless this fellowship, Lord? I pray that you would bless each and every member here, Father. Their their husbands, their wives, their kids, their grandkids, Lord, their extended families. Would you just shine your light and fall with your spirit upon all of us today? And just give us your sweet love. And Lord, just fill us. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for this sweet time that we've had together. Pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.